Disclaimer, I am a counseling student, I am not a mental health professional, and I cannot give or offer mental health services. You are listening to Good You. I'm your host, Samantha, and today I sit down with another guest named Sam. So this week we have Sam King. She goes by Sam the Shrink on Instagram. You can find her at at sam.the.shrink. So Sam is a registered nurse. She's a social worker. Um, She is a psych mental health nurse. And today I sit down with her to discuss a topic that I didn't know much about. Uh, It's moral injury. So She's going to explain all about moral injury and uh, how it actually affects the healthcare profession, first responders, veterans. Um, I definitely personally didn't know much about this topic until speaking with Sam, and it is very fascinating to learn more about. So I hope you enjoy today's episode and make sure to go follow her on Instagram and let's get started. So hello, Sam. I got another Sam today. This is Sam the Shrink. Thank you so much for being here with me today. My pleasure. It's always fun to connect with another Sam. Yeah. And a Sam in Canada. Like this is so exciting for me. Yes. Yeah. Canadian Sam. I'm sure you'll have uh, American Sam. Who knows? uh, Given how successful your podcast has been, maybe you'll have like an Australian Sam coming on. That would be so awesome. What if you just get a Sam from every country? (laughs) We can have like a whole like Zoom conference together. Yes. Love it. (laughs) Well, today I'm sitting with Sam and we're so you are an RN. You are a uh, CPM. What what was this? It's a, I'm a certified uh, psychiatric and mental health nurse. That's the certification we have through our Canadian Nurses Association. So like we have the option to specialize as registered nurses and I'm also a clinical social worker. So I have my master's in social work as well. Yes, I saw that. And you work with a lot of healthcare workers and first responders, mm-hmm. veterans, which that is very difficult line of work to, to be in. What made you decide to work with this uh, population? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know what, I, I kind of got into it four years ago, I started uh, kind of specializing in the area of, you know, uh, operational stress injury, which is a term we use for any type of like psychological uh, distress that's encountered uh, during folks service, whether they're, you know, police or uh, law enforcement or military. Um, I just I had an opportunity, I was working in community mental health, um, you know, um, I think most of your listeners might be from the states, but we have a, a public health care system in Canada. So Um, You know, I worked with uh, civilians, most people who didn't have like health insurance, you know, we see them as part of like um, their health care plan through the government. So like they get free therapy and it can be all walks of life. Like so like I worked with a lot of people with BPD, complex trauma, uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. As a nurse, you know, you would see people do therapy and, you know, you would also give them their long acting uh, antipsychotic injection and kind of just form like a relationship that way. And so there was an opportunity, um, the clinic um, I'm a part of right now that, that, uh, I specialize with veterans and in addition to my private practice, uh, they just had a spot open up. It was a fairly new clinic. Um, they had a spot for, um, a nurse therapist 
And yeah, I, I interviewed for the position and I was just kind of interested to learn more about trauma in general. Um, and uh, my, my dad actually was, was in the Air Force for uh, a brief period of time. And when I was growing up, he always, you know, uh, informed me on, you know, uh, the, the history of, you know, World War II and, and just kind of political issues. So I would be kind of informed. So I just had an interest right away. And yeah, it, it was, it's been a really great experience. That's awesome. I, I imagine also like word of mouth spreads, like especially in those communities, because it's a circle of trust. And mm-hmm. they say if they can go, one person can go to someone that they trust, which would be you, they tell their other uh, members of their community. You know, that Sam, yeah, that's a, a big uh, piece of like the cultural sensitivity pieces. I find working with veterans and, and first responders, it takes, uh, you know, it takes time to build trust in any type of relationship, but I find it takes even more time to build trust. And, and you know, it's expected that they'll test the therapist to make sure you can, you know, handle the uh, intensity of some of the traumatic experiences, uh, you know, with uh, integrity and uh, not be uh, affected by it and uh, also be not, not judgmental, of course. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure to be honest, to work with such a highly regarded population. That's awesome. Yes. That's, that's so amazing. Like when I tell anyone listening that that is probably one of uh, the harder uh, areas to work in because you do hear a lot of stories that none of none, no civilian would ever understand. Um, and so it takes a special kind of person to be able to sit there and be open-minded and understanding and just sit with that person. Totally. So, um, you told us a little about why you chose this, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I've been in the mental health game for a little over eight years now. Um, yeah, I graduated in 2014 with a bachelor of science in nursing and, and right from the get-go, I knew I wanted to work in mental health. Um, and that's where I did all my clinical placements as a nurse and in Canada, when I, when I was in school, it was a four-year program. Now it's kind of shortened to uh, two or three years if you have a, a, a bachelor in science already. Um, so yeah, I, I worked in mental health. I worked in, uh, inpatient I've worked in kind of residential, um, like kind of addictions in mental health settings. So like supporting people to like recover, uh, through their trauma and their addictions, um, concerns, uh, as, as like a nurse and as a therapist, uh, worked in community mental health for a few years. Um, and at the OSI clinic, I also uh, work in private practice. I'm a part of a group practice, um, where I, uh, you know, work with lots of different people, but, uh, we have a special program because, uh, physicians tend to, wait a long time, just kind of similar to our first responders to ask for help. Uh, we have a special program that we're partnering with through Doctors Nova Scotia, which is the province I'm, I live in and I'm licensed in. And uh, we, we hold special uh, like urgent spots for physicians because it's often um, they're, they're in dire straits when they seek support. So I work with a lot of uh, medical doctors in uh, kind of supporting them through their, their trauma and recovery journey. And uh, I also, uh, this, this uh, I know I was telling, we were talking earlier before we aired that the last time I went to uh, Louisiana was for a conference. I was actually there for a forensic nurse conference because I was a sexual assault nurse examiner for three years, um, which was really, really intense and interesting work. And so I also uh, used to do medical forensic exams for uh, survivors of sexual assault. And uh, so, yeah, you could say I've worn many hats in the short eight years I've been in the field. Wow. Yeah, you definitely have. I mean, and how long had was that span of time since you got your license to now? Eight years. Eight years. Wow. Yeah. So yep. you are definitely well experienced with, with high trauma levels of information. I I'm curious. I want to add a question in, I know I don't, I didn't ask this, uh, in the question, but, uh, if you could tell any first responders, physicians, healthcare workers, veterans 
who are afraid to reach out to a mental health professional, anything, what would you tell them? You know, I would say that it's completely normal. I call it the, the thousand pound phone. It, the phone can feel like a thousand pounds to like pick up and ask for help, but know that you're, you're normal. It's completely normal to be affected by these experience. And it's actually possible to be super strong and stoic and have emotions at the same time. It's totally normal. You can, you can be both. You're not weak for having feelings. You're just normal human being. I always tell people, uh, cause I like to joke. I say, guess what? This is a sign that you're not a sociopath. Like, guess what? You have emotions. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a good, that's a good thing. Yeah. You've been affected by your work, but that's, that's a good thing. It means you're normal. Yeah. And, and the fact that, that you're still able to do the work. I mean, like yeah. you're doing it is the strong part of you that you're so scared of losing by talking about it. Totally. Yeah. I, I would say to people, you know, mental health, it's not fight club. We can talk about it. Yes. Yes. I love that. I'm, can I, I'm going to patent that for you right there. And I'm just going <laughs> to tag you every time I use that. Go ahead. <laughs> well, um, okay. So today we're talking about moral injury. And so Sam messaged me, um, and about wanting to talk about this topic and I am not going to lie. I had no idea what it was. So I had to do a little Google search before I messaged her back. And I am actually very excited to, uh, spread the word about this topic, because I don't think a lot of people know about it. Mm -hmm. So what is moral injury? Yeah. Thank you again. I think it's so important to have a platform to talk about this because uh, I find, you know, just knowledge is power. And and when we have words to name our experiences, that can really be um, a a huge kind of impetus to like recovery and moving forward. So moral injury, there's actually not a whole lot of research on it. It's one of those up and coming terms. And like, there's, when I looked kind of at the research, there's over like 17 kind of unique definitions of what it is, but kind of the general consensus is that it's, it's a type of psychological injury where there's uh, either kind of actions committed by um, the person or other people that, that surpasses like uh, moral and ethical principles. So it can be like a failure to live up to one's own moral principles uh, it's basically like the psychological, social, and spiritual impact of events following betrayal by those holding legitimate power in high stakes situations or the betrayal of what's right by someone who may hold uh, that type of authority. So it could be um, yourself or someone else. Um, and it's not like an official uh, like DSM-5 diagnosis, um, but it's often a, comp- a component of someone's uh, trauma, um, but it can occur separately from PTSD. So just because you may have... Um, you know, faced a situation that may have met kind of criteria for a moral injury doesn't mean that you'll have post-traumatic stress, um, but it could kind of manifest in a range of psychological difficulties and diagnosis. Yes. And I read uh, something online that it said uh, PTSD has to do with fear. Um, and then moral injury has to do with moral and ethical codes, like, like what you just said. So Huge. there's a difference there. Yeah. Yeah. And there's often a lot of guilt and shame that can come up, that can come up with it. So like in my line of work, Oftentimes, uh, just because I work with a lot of veterans and first responders and, and you know, physicians, like I said, it, it's pretty common for, you know, mm-hmm. them to have um, experienced a morally injurious like event and then several other events over time. And that all kind of cumulatively um, brought them to have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress and the guilt and the fear and the anxiety. It's all kind of um, this really, you know, challenging uh, smoothie of, of things to kind of unpack and, and to work with. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to necessarily mean that the person, uh, has PTSD. Yeah. And I, and I know that it's kind of something that was forced upon them as well. Like they didn't, uh, most of the time it has to do with not really having much of a choice in making that decision and what causes the moral injury. 
Yeah, that, that's a that's a great descriptor because when you think about it, a lot of the times, um, what makes a traumatic event traumatic is that it was, um, you know, uh, like kind of un, not not uncertain. What's the word? Unexpected, um, out unexpected, of your control. Yeah, out of your control. Yeah, and so that loss of control piece, um, folks have to grapple with, and sometimes whether it's a conscious process or not, we kind of, as human beings, uh, like control and we like certainty. And so sometimes our, how our brain makes sense of a trauma is we uh, kind of come to the conclusion that maybe we had more control than we actually had. And that uh, can kind of produce the the guilt and, and the shame and, and the, all the anxiety that comes with the trauma and the moral injury. And so we, uh, we may feel complicit in kind of that type of event. Oh yeah. I can, I can only imagine uh, some of the, some of the stories that I've read while researching that's what mm-hmm. made this topic so, so important from that. I wanted to talk about, I so glad that you chose that really am. Um, what symptoms occur in individuals that experience moral injury? We talked about possibly having PTSD, but what other things do you see? Yeah. So, you know, a, a lot of intense emotions, um, especially guilt, shame, and anger, and the, the anger can be directed at the person themselves. It can be directed at their, um, maybe their supervisors or like, um, you know, an organization perhaps, or, or at a perpetrator, maybe they witnessed, um, you know, an act of betrayal or, or, um, you know, egregious behavior that resulted in the moral injury. Um, on the flip side, it could also result in just feeling dead inside and empty and numb. So a lot of my clients, they kind of report vacillating between feeling just like enraged and, and easily agitated at the world between feeling just like empty and, and dead inside. And often, um, you know, when we kind of talk about that, it, it's just a result of like pushing and suppressing those emotions and just kind of numbing out because it's just too painful, um, to deal with, um, the loss of meaning and kind of the questioning is huge. Like, especially for, um, you know, some of the, the first responders I work with, they may be kind of wondering, like, why am I even doing this job? Like, what's the point? You know, I, I'm just making things worse. Like I went into this profession to help is what a lot of first responders say. And they're like, wow, I'm just making things worse. Like, what's the point? There's no meaning. So that that identity crisis can follow. And that can be really, uh, really disturbing for the person. Um, loss of trust in people uh, and as well as themselves. So like they may feel like they can't trust their judgment anymore. Maybe in like a high stake situation, they may have uh, made um, a call that they deemed as bad. And, you know, they kind of, ruminate and circle that circle the drain and they may conclude that they can't trust their judgment um, or you know lack of trust in the organization or other people you know I can't trust people anymore people are always going to do their bad thing humanity is is bad those types of negative beliefs of depression of course and increased risk for suicide for sure um, and, and just general like you know difficulties at, at work and, and at home because um, you know the the urge that comes with guilt and shame is to hide and to pull away people can become quite disengaged and disenfranchised with with their work or with other people just don't want to be around because of the shame they carry um, for some of the, the veterans I work with that were in Afghanistan um, they, they just Im- immense immense shame like they they really felt like maybe they would run to someone of uh, Middle Eastern descent that like maybe they hurt their family in an act of you know moral injury that kind of needed to happen but uh, you know, had consequences. So they just feel huge amount of shame and guilt. Um, and of course, you know, burnout and compassion fatigue. So I guess something I'll mention is like moral injury um, in, in kind of the, when I was looking into the literature, it, it can be a, a bit of a spectrum. Yeah. So like on the lower impact and you can kind of experience like moral frustration with like maybe some moral challenges at work and maybe with enough support, you can kind of work through that. 
and uh, you know, kind of come out the other side, it's kind of like an isolated situation and people can kind of work through and debrief and be okay. And then kind of the moderate impact is like a morally distressing situation, you know, a situation that creates, um, you know, a lot of distress and Again, with enough support, people can kind of work through that. But as you kind of get into the higher impact and the moral injury piece, a lot of the times that can be um, a cumulative effect of several incidents over time, uh, combined with the intensity of the work or, or like the, uh, the egregiousness or the, uh, the ramifications of whatever transpired from that event, um, that has the most impact and can be more longstanding. And so uh, the symptoms can kind of manifest based on how intense and, and how high the impact was um, on that individual. Yeah. And as you're talking, I feel like I'm getting all these examples of what it could be for healthcare workers in my head. Like mm. I just pictured, um, you know, I've watched a lot of like Grey's Anatomy and like, yeah. uh, and house. And so like I'm a little expert in the medical field myself, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I imagine like if a client or a patient, um, were to have religious beliefs against, getting treatment and you know that this individual or it's a child and the parents, you know, so I imagine that would be against moral injury or would cause moral injury in a, a physician or a doctor in that, in that case, because they can't treat the patient and know the outcome that will come from those things and things like that. Um, I, can you provide some more examples of moral injury? Yeah, th- those are those are all great uh, suggestions and um, kind of in the field, you may have noticed this when you're looking, we kind of call them like PMIE. So it's like potentially morally injurious events, PMIE, because okay. like same with, same with trauma, you right. know, there, there are individuals who, um, you know, may have experienced adversity in their life and not have been traumatized for it. You know, their people are generally resilient with enough supports and, you know, kind of other factors people can kind of get through. So like, you know, someone like a nurse or a doctor or a police officer could, um, you know, experience an event that one may look at without the context and be like, oh, wow, like that moral injury, totally. But, you know, if that person had enough support, maybe they are debriefed, maybe they had some spiritual uh, counseling and, and some therapy kind of to support them and follow them through, like they may come out that the other side and be like, totally okay. And then they can kind of accept and conclude that, yeah, you know, that had a bad outcome. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person or I made a bad call and I'm allowed to kind of, you know, be human and and such and such. So people can kind of come out and and rectify that quickly, but in other cases, not so much. And so some examples that I've been hearing lately, um, I was at a conference a few weeks ago, all about moral injury in uh, healthcare providers. And uh, some of the examples were just like with COVID, you know, as, as a nurse, we're trained to like, you know, give a high level of care, compassionate, active listening to our patients, you know, being right there for them, um, you know, while trying to manage other demands, of course, but you know, we were, we're trained and we want to go the extra mile for everyone we see. Um, and of course, when you're on a, a busy unit, that's not always possible. But then when you add in the COVID factor, then it's really um, gets dodgy, right? Because, you know, we, we may uh, want to be right there for them, give them all the supports and resources, connect them with all these, these things. But, you know, what, due to the isolation and the, and the quarantine and the risk of the nurses getting ill themselves, that really can put the nurses in a morally distressing or maybe morally injurious situation when they're not able to provide the kind of care that they want or, or, or know. Um, you know, seeing someone dying alone without um, their family able to visit them, that is extremely distressing. Wow. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think about that end. When, when we talked about COVID uh, formal injury, I was thinking a lot about uh, having to make the decision about who gets a ventilator or a bed. Oh, well, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. totally. But I didn't even think about the fact that just watching someone be isolated 
alone is it can cause moral injury. That that's very eye opening to me too. Hundred percent, and that's something you know the brave men, women, non-binary nurses, and and doctors, and uh, you know uh, care team assistants have to face daily. Yeah. all around the world uh, in the past two years. And so we, it's, it's no wonder why people are getting burnt out and uh, traumatized by their, by their work. Yeah. And so many nurses dropping out, like we, there's a lot mm. of hospitals near uh, where I live that are short staff for nurses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same here in Canada. We, uh, we, we have a lot of um, just demographically before COVID, a lot of our nurses um, are kind of approaching retirement. So like we had some initiatives to get more seats in our nursing programs. We have um, three uh, renowned nursing schools in my province that like, you know, nurses go to, and there's like 150 to 200 seats. Um, and so even before that, we we're like, Hey, we need more nurses. But then ever since COVID and, you know, the, the things that the nurses have had to deal with and just like the, you know, regular pains of being busy and, you know, cause, cause nurses can be traumatized on the job and doctors on like yeah. a regular day, just because, you know, it's, it can be intense and, things unfortunately can go sideways in a hospital acute care setting. Uh, but then when you add in the COVID factors, it's just, yeah, the, the level of burnout and compassion fatigue is off the charts. Yeah. Especially in the beginning when we had no idea what the heck was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe a nurse may look back now that we have more research, they may say like, Oh my God, I wish I knew that then. And, and that can create distress kind of in hindsight too. Me, but you know, in reality, they were just doing the best they could with the information they had. Yeah, exactly. So I would have to imagine that getting seeking mental health help sooner rather than later is going to be best for anyone, especially mm-hmm. going through moral injury. Yes. But yeah, again, this is the thing. And this is why, um, you know, my uh, my private practice has that partnership with Doctors Nova Scotia. Oftentimes, you know, nurses, doctors, we, we kind of have a bit of the hero complex, you know, we want to be there and help people. But then we the last people to to help is ourselves and, uh, you know, not to go off on too far of a sidebar that that's actually the reason why I went and pursued my master's in social work, because, um, in Canada, it's even though in our public system, it's pretty common for nurses, um, you know, advanced practice nurses like myself to do psychotherapy there, our professional association that like, I tried to, um, join advocacy committees, but there really wasn't anyone advocating for ourselves to, um, to get kind of recognized by insurance companies to bill our services, etc. And so that's why I decided to do my master's in social work. I literally, nothing changed but my job, you know, even my rate of pay is the same, um, you know, from one position to the other, but you know, there was just no, the nurses were so focused on advocating for our patients, which is great, but we need, we need to kind of speak up and advocate for ourselves. So that's actually why I did my master's in social work was because I was just really fed up with kind of trying to battle all these insurance companies to get compensated for my services as a, as a registered nurse who has all the same training as, you know, psychology and social work when, when it comes to doing the therapies, of course. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I ended up, uh, switching over. I still have my license as a nurse. Um, but yeah, as a social worker, um, there's a lot more advocacy within our, our professional organization, our college to, uh, go to bat for us to, you know, have like all the insurance companies cover our services. Yeah. So, so yeah, like, uh, we're, we're nurses struggle to, uh, help ourselves first. And I think that's a, a paradigm shift that needs to start right from uh, year one in nursing school. Yeah. Very admirable of you. And also want to say that that also has to go into, the knowing the lingo of different nurses and that and building that trust is that like you know you've been there you you know the feeling of feeling secluded and 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 you know that firsthand mm-hmm. 100 yeah um so do you want to talk about a little more about how COVID-19 has affected healthcare workers because I, I know we talked a little bit but I think there's a lot more that we can talk about yeah. there yeah you know I, I think 
I think, yeah, one of the major things and like, there's kind of two types of like, um, potentially morally injurious events or categories that you say, like there's ones that, you know, involve people acting against their own moral beliefs or like failing, or mm-hmm. they're, maybe they're thwarted to act in a way that supports them. And then there's also like being exposed directly or indirectly to other people's transgressions as well. So I guess, um, kind of like we were talking about earlier, there's the COVID factor, but then, you know, people are people there's, um, I don't like to classify people as good or bad because it's more complicated than that, but like to, to make it kind of more simplified, there's good and bad people everywhere. You know, uh, there's there, unfortunately there are, um, you know, things that go on in hospitals as well as other types of settings that like, you know, create, uh, you know, difficult kind of situations. Right. And so, um, p- nurses may be dealing and physicians may be dealing with kind of the, the COVID distress, and maybe they are also witnessing, um, other people's kind of transgressions. So this can call all kind of snowball, um, and really kind of create a very like negative and pessimistic, um, outlook on the profession as a whole, or on, um, their career choices or on kind of just being a part of the organization, which may kind of drive someone to leave, leave their career. Um, I can also imagine the, when we were going through that dispute of masks and no masks, vaccine and no vaccine, mm-hmm. that there was a lot of dispute within that profession as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. To be honest, I've never seen like a more polarizing time, uh, for folks. Um, yeah, yeah it's it, there, a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, people in healthcare, uh, they were on board with like getting uh, vaccinated and such. However, there was a few that, that weren't. And so, yeah, if you're for various valid reasons, of course. And so if you're, um, being kind of named and shamed by your colleagues, it's like, you know, that your own colleagues can't even support each other. Right. It's, it's like this huge divide and that creates a lot of tension, uh, within your work environment, within your community. Um, I'm not sure what, uh, the restrictions were in your area, but like we had some pretty intense, um, restrictions up here in Canada, for example, you know, there was a point where, um, you know, you, you pretty much like, couldn't really like leave your house. Like, like we were so short staffed, people were encouraged not to drive too far because if there was like a car accident that would pull away resources and beds for people who were sick, like it was like really intense restrictions for a bit. And, uh, again, like, I'm not sure what's like in the States, but like we reached a point in November where you mandatory, if you're a healthcare worker, you need to have your COVID vaccines, like at least, uh, double dosed to, to work. And so, that, you know, put a lot of people out of the profession who uh, weren't ready to get vaccinated yet, or maybe it was against their, um, you know, kind of their beliefs. Yeah. That's kind of how it looked here. There wasn't as strict of the staying home thing. Um, They definitely had the the type of workers that worked during the pandemic. Essential workers? Yes. Why? Mm. I don't know how that's not like scarred in my mind, but essential workers (laughs) were like restaurants, you know? So people are still working food, like touching food and working with food and, and feeding it to other people. So I think that, um, it it never really slowed down here until it actually did. And people started wearing masks and the vaccine came out and, um, but yeah, we saw the same thing with the effects of vaccines for like the civilians getting separate and then the healthcare workers separating, especially once, uh, some of the hospitals started requiring nurses and staff to get vaccinated that's when we started seeing it become short, short staffed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, so we talked a little bit about this, but can we talk a little bit more about how does more injury differ from PTSD for those who mm. are wondering? Yeah. Yeah, totally. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure uh, the, the psychologists who are like so well trained with like assessment and like the diagnostics could, could do a, a more rigorous description than I, but I'll do my best. So, so yeah, like, you know, I, I also like come into mind, I kind of practice in a way that like, you know, trauma is trauma, uh, is trauma, you know, someone yeah. may have experienced a traumatic event. Sure. Maybe they don't check all these boxes that, you know, some really smart people, um, usually white cis men kind of me for this category of PTSD, but like, you know, if they have generalized anxiety or whatever, I'm going to go find the trauma. We're going to process it. We're going to support them to learn skills and they're going to move forward. And that just kind of seems to, to work. Yeah. Um, right. Um, and so, so yeah, like if, if someone, doesn't meet that diagnostic criteria, those magical four categories of symptoms, plus the criterion A event in, in PTSD, uh, you know, they may have sub-threshold symptoms. Maybe they have more of like a mixed presentation. Maybe they're, they're um, kind of more explosive. They're more kind of externalizing. Um, you know, it, it's, there can be different presentations of the moral injury, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the impact on someone's like uh, sense of meaning. They're, you know, rocking their kind of worldview, uh, the, the kind of the self-doubt piece or the doubt in others. Um, and so honestly, like just because I work with like so many first responders, it's, it's pretty common that the, the, the trauma, whether it's like, um, PTSD or like kind of the sub threshold, other trauma and stressor disorder, um, there's the moral injury component there. And we kind of, I kind of described to them as like, you know, there's some nuance to your work. You know, you have a very, um, you know, highly regarded profession. It's intense lots of different scenarios. And it's also kind of the accumulation of lots of different criterion A events over time, lots of different traumatic events. Um, and, you know, we kind of come to know the moral injury or the moral distressing piece as a bit more of a theme within that. So as a therapist, uh, I, you know, I do EMDR as well as, um, awesome. you know, cognitive, cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure. And so I kind of uh, give clients the option of how they want to approach things. But in general, I kind of talk about the common themes that are disrupted by a traumatic event. Uh, safety, trust, power and control, esteem, and uh, intimacy in terms of like being able to sit with your feelings and honor your feelings or be vulnerable with other people. And so I kind of give them that type of education. And then we kind of weave the moral injury uh, piece into it because it often disrupts people's sense of safety, disrupts people's sense of uh, trust within themselves and others, uh, their, their faith and their esteem and other people in themselves and the ability to be vulnerable and share. And so we kind of incorporate that into the dialogue and help them kind of build a narrative that makes sense to them and honors all the aspects of their, their identity. And something that we should mention, um, I apologize, I have not mentioned this earlier, but um, it can be suggested uh, that, you know, racialized um, healthcare workers, first responders, military are probably more at risk to have a moral injury because of I can imagine. The systemic racism piece, right? Yeah. And there's absolutely no research on this at all. Um, same with, you know, uh, folks who are part of the LGBTQ uh, two-spirit community, same, because of their, they're so marginalized and, you know, that that factors into the narrative as well and how they kind of experience themselves and other people. They're, they're, at, they're at a heightened risk to have moral injury and moral distress. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely imagine that. I'm I was just telling, uh, I think I was telling Sam when I recorded with her on Friday <laughs> yes. that, that um, I, I'm in a cross or multicultural class right now. That's my, mm. uh, the course I'm taking this semester. And it's, it's very eye-opening to everything you're talking about right now with, um, BIPOC and LGBTQ and yeah, you're right. There isn't enough research and hopefully the generations that are taking these courses can change that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So important. Well, do you think that moral injuries should be uh, included in the DSM five or the next version? 
Well, I mean, as someone that doesn't highly value it, <laughs> like, you know, as, as I don't diagnose folks as a social worker or a nurse, I just kind of, um, you know, assess and, and, and treat. So like, I'm not really someone when I first started, I was referring to the DSM five and, you know, in terms of like insurance purposes, I don't really mm-hmm. see a whole lot of people for that purpose anyway. And the people that do um, have already been assessed by psychology. So like, I'm not really kind of taking care of that piece. I'm kind of more or less supporting it and like kind of including the narrative of what I see. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think if, if you're going to have a manual that's going to be widely used, then that has power and we need to use that power for good and to, you know, empower not just our, our clients, but our, our clinicians and physicians to, um, you know, include all these aspects of a part of narratives. So yeah, we, we shouldn't leave out anything. We shouldn't leave out moral injury. We shouldn't uh, uh, leave out, you know, race-based stress and trauma, everything should be included. You know, if, if we're going to have this like big manual that has so much clout, then I think, um, we need to be very respectful and mindful and inclusive in terms of what gets counted and, uh, what doesn't. Um, so, you know, that's why I kind of have that, uh, view of the manual. It's like, well, it's not inclusive of anything anyway. So like as someone who's trying to empower folks and have a narrative that really encompasses their life experience, like, I don't really use it. I don't reference it a whole lot in terms, unless I'm like talking to someone's um, insurance adjuster or um, helping, you know, give, doing the education piece, you know, right. Because, you know, it, it's, it's easier to break down and to help have someone understand that like, this is the diagnosis. That's what it means. So yeah, you know, I talk to people about their diagnosis. I don't tell clients that it's, it's invalid at all. I, I don't right. want that to come across like that, but like, I don't uh, reference it much, um, you know, cause I, I kind of base it off you know, what someone's presenting with. And I'm not going to tell someone that their traumatic event wasn't traumatic because it didn't meet criteria A in terms of the level of violence. You know what I mean? So absolutely. And um, one, one thing that uh, she's talking about right now is the fact that psychology and therapy were basically created by a bunch of uh, white Eurocentric men. Yeah. And, and it leaves out a lot of diversity within diagnosing treatment uh, research and the more you're studying in it, the more you see how left out those communities are. So, exactly. um, yeah, so that is, that is a good point that you're bringing up. And I'd love to talk more on that too. I'm, uh, in a future episode, like fully dive into the problems, really yeah. great topic to touch on on that one. Um, totally. And like, yeah. I don't want to devalue the DSM. However, you know, I think we, there are some very problematic things about it. So exactly. You know. Same thing with the treatment wise, like it, exactly. It, it really, it's, it could stand a workup. It could. Yeah. It's like, okay, great that they're revising it. But like, there's, yeah. as far as I hear, it's more or less kind of the same, a few tweaks. Like I think we yeah. could do better. Like a full, we need to read through it really. Yeah. And get yeah. some consultation from some you know, folks who are, you know, a part of the BIPOC community, yeah. people who are, um, you know, uh, you know, living with, uh, you know, chronic illness and, you know, uh, you know, uh, different types of challenges. Let's like, you know, let's pay them and get their consult and get them to kind of weigh in on it. Facts. Just <laughs> facts. She's spitting facts right now. <laughs> so what therapy techniques do you find work best with individuals? I know you said, like, do you have a theor- theoretical orientation that you work around? I do. I am eclectic. So like, I always use kind of like a smoothie, the smoothie analogy. Like I've been, you know, privileged to attend like lots of different trainings over the years from like, you know, uh, kind of core CBT to DBT to acceptance and commitment therapy, interpersonal therapy, EMDR. Um, but I do like, you know, of course the trauma focused CBT stuff. Um, but like, I'm sorry, do you happen to work with existentialism at all? Because I feel like this community would 
Yeah. Yeah. So in- interestingly enough, so I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not like a trained existential therapist or logotherapist, but the, the conference I mentioned that I went to um, actually had a whole session on using logotherapy, which is like existentially driven um, therapy with um, people who have suffered a moral injury. And like Victor Frankl was probably one of the most incredible human beings to like walk this earth. Oh my gosh, what he went through. Oh my, I, like man search for meaning. I recommend it to a lot of my, my clients because yeah, like what, what a story and, and what a way to come out of the other side resilient, yeah. like incredibly traumatic, of course. And, you know, life can still be li- like worth living with pain and trauma. And so like all the respect, you know, I've, I've, I've learned a lot from those books and I do incorporate that into my approach, but yeah, I, I, I would love to do more reading and more training in that area. But like, in terms of what helps uh, with moral injury again, like research, not a whole lot out there. Um, I find as a therapist, like I try to just kind of make, include that in part of the narrative. Um, the meaning making is huge and having people um, kind of resolve some of those like negative cognitions around like the control piece, thinking they kind of had more control than they did, um, you know, how to kind of have a more um, broad world or um, perception of kind of what, what happened. So like honoring that, yeah, like there was a transgression and, you know, and this is just one moment uh, and like all these factors that were in all the, all the context, you know, kind of helping them kind of reconcile that there was all these um, forces at play that kind of caused something to happen because, you know, most events have a cause, even if we don't understand or, or like what it was. And so kind of helping people resolve those types of issues can be really impactful and also allow them permission to feel feelings. I think sometimes, you know, especially, you know, as a younger therapist, when I started, like, you know, we're there, we want to help, we want to change, we want to help someone recover, but also giving them permission to like sit with their feelings and to feel uh, whatever is kind of coming up for them and, and, you know, making, making space for that while kind of gradually introducing some of these um, uh, kind of interweaves and, and different ways to kind of think about the event and, and different ways to kind of experience it. Because I think, uh, you know, this is a complex thing as, as I'm talking about, there's so many different approaches and I don't think there's one therapy that um, necessarily nails it because in my work, I, I kind of, I use some EMDR resourcing. Sometimes they'll, yeah. they'll want to do the full processing. Um, I'll do a lot of, um, you know, kind of cognitive processing as well, like in terms of like the themes and like the meaning making of it. Um, and also kind of considering the role of, of attachment as well in terms of what kind of, a lot of this is like a relational violation right and so kind of um, rectifying that piece and helping them kind of seek support and uh, you know build that relationship with others and with themselves again so yeah I don't think there's one therapy that like has a down pat Um, I did talk to um, uh, Sonia Norman and and Christy Capone from um, uh, they're they're researchers that are developing a treatment right now it's called trigger it's a it's a it's designed to reduce uh, guilt um, in uh, you know traumatic events and they've been doing some trials with a military and they have like this big study that's ongoing and it sounds like their their treatment's really promising because it really targets the guilt from a traumatic event um to you know very intelligent women in the field that are leading this which is is incredible and so i think there's going to be a lot more research and a lot more understanding of how complex moral injury is and what are kind of the best treatment options but i don't think it's ever going to be like a one size fits all just because there's so many individual factors and you know we got to factor in the, the race piece the the demographic that person's lifespan, um, if they had childhood trauma, this may have been just another betrayal or maybe another time they felt like a bad person. That's really kind of a solid theme. So yeah, it can get really, really complex. And so I yeah. think that's uh, w- when you're working with, uh, you know, whether you're working with military or healthcare workers or first responders, you have to be extremely organized 
and you have to be very nuanced in terms of uh, working with that type of complexity and, and the layers. Like, and I'm definitely not a master of it yet, but it's something I'm trying to really uh, hone in on is um, honoring all the different pieces, keeping myself um, organized. And uh, yeah, I really get a lot of supervision in kind of doing so because it, it's easy to get overwhelmed as a therapist with like, oh my gosh, there's stuff from, from their childhood. There's stuff uh, from like their their, their youth, or maybe they had another career before this and they switched. Like I have, I see folks that were both military and nurses and doctors or, and police officers. So like there can be so much stuff. And so just being like really, um, really organized and, uh, kind of, you know, systematic when you kind of approach it can be, uh, can be key. Yeah. One, one thing my teacher was saying the other day, uh, Dr. Austin, he was, uh, a guest on the podcast. Um, he Mm. was saying that just when you as a therapist start feeling like you've seen it all, something else comes in and turns your world upside down. And I I imagine that's almost probably every client is, is something different with healthcare workers, first responders, veterans. A hundred percent. And like, sometimes you you may see people that are like, okay, like, yeah, okay. This, yeah, this person's got a lot of your service. Yeah. They've had a lot of trauma. Yeah. There's been tons of moral injury. I think I got this on lock, but then um, they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. I, I don't, I don't think EMDR works. I don't like that. I don't, I'm uncomfortable with the tapping. So then it's like, okay, that's totally cool. Maybe we'll revisit. So then you have to, you ultimately have to be client centered and go with what they want, which like in your mind um, may make things a bit more complex or may not necessarily clear all the targets because maybe they want to do like prolonged exposure. Maybe that's where they feel comfortable. Um, even though it is a robust therapy, you know, sometimes people just want to do that. They know it's 10 weeks long. They know um, there's not a whole lot of working parts to it. And they're like, this is what I'm comfortable with. I don't want to do any tapping can't get yeah. down with the butterfly hug. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do yeah. That. But guess what? Then that's an opportunity. You're with them for 10 weeks at least. And you have the time to build rapport, get more information, um, you know, kind of see how they process and, and to learn from that round of therapy. So like, I find the journey, it, it's so kind of like classic, but like, and I know for folks listening, um, it's going to be hard to describe it like that meme or that it's like all like messy. It's like all squiggles and it's like, recovery is not linear and it's all messy. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, over time we slowly kind of untangle what it is. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, I find whether we start with like the, like air quotes, like right approach or not, we, we kind of find our way eventually just through like, you know, there's never, it's never lost. Even if we pick the approach that might be like a bit trickier or might not necessarily clear this whole theme. Um, it is a step forward. The person's learning about emotions. They're not avoiding anymore, which is, which is a big part of PTSD and trauma is, you know, we want to avoid these feelings and memories and it's all a step forward. And we all kind of find, find our way in the end. We, we get, yeah. we get there, we get the person where they want to be. And it's, it's really important to respect what they want and, the, and what they feel comfortable with in the process. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and that applies to more than just this type of therapy. This is every therapy I think needs to be Mm -hmm. really client focused and client centered. Um, I am adding a question in of course, Um, (laughs) but what can family members of first responders and veterans and healthcare workers do to support uh, their loved ones that are uh, experiencing moral injury and because I, I imagine that they don't really talk about it with their loved ones out of wanting to keep them safe from what they know. So what I can they do? love this question so oh, much and feel free to ask as many questions as you want. Cause I actually, I didn't, I looked at them, but I didn't like write out my answers or anything. Oh, um, perfect. So like, <laughs> I, I felt confident enough just cause I've been working in this area for so yeah, long to, to kind of just, just wing it. But, um, yeah, I love this question so much. And I'd say number one thing, take care of your freaking selves, <laughs> fill up your cup. You, you got, again, the classic, um, I'm going to say it 
I know you, you've I've probably heard a lot in school, but you, you do, you truly need to put your own oxygen mask on before you go help someone else with yes. their, theirs on the plane. Right. Yeah. You need to take care of yourself. You need to have a, a, a very true to you, a, an excellent self-care routine because the burnout and the compassion fatigue as a caregiver or, or a spouse or, um, you know, an adult child looking after someone who is struggling is very real. It, it's heavy, yeah. the weight that's carried. And I, you know, I really look at um, the family members, especially the spouses as the unsung heroes of the healthcare and first responder and military world, they carry so much. And, and you're absolutely correct. A lot of the times, um, and it may be just kind of the, at the point where my clients sought therapy, that the spouse may be far removed because they're just totally like disengaged. They're, they're burnt. They just yeah. can't, they, they, they can't uh, make it to a session. They're just so far gone. They can't tolerate. They can't, they can't even talk about it. It's just too painful for them that it's the person's been struggling for so long. Maybe the help wasn't available. Maybe they weren't um, willing to get help or maybe they were in denial. Maybe no one talked about it, whatever the reason, you know, they're just, they, they knew that something was wrong, but like they, they just couldn't, uh, it couldn't be dealt with. And yeah, they're just kind of to the point where they're like uh, out of the picture. Um, and, and, you know, fortunately I think, uh, you know, we're doing a little bit better in reducing the stigma. It's still at large uh, in terms of asking for help in, you know, in terms of physicians, uh, even nurses as well. Um, there's a stigma there. Uh, definitely police officers, definitely military. Um, I think, but it's, I think it's getting slightly better, but still it definitely needs to be more widely talked about. And yeah, th- those, those spouses, like, seriously, you, you guys, if anyone's listening, you know, I see you, the weight that you're carrying is, is huge and you deserve to have your own therapist. You deserve to go for a run or walk. You don't, you know, you should never feel, um, feel bad about taking care of yourself. Like it's totally possible for you to love your, your veteran or love to love your family member and, uh, address your own needs. And that, that is like so crucial. So like that is something that is, is huge, um, is for them is to take care of themselves. And also, um, with respect to their partner, um, the education piece is huge. So like, yeah, I, I hope that, you know, maybe people listening to this, get something out of it and then maybe they can share it with their clients to listen to with their spouse. Um, I did, I do some presentations for our um, national police force in our military. So I presented, um, on this very topic, um, about family members with operational stress injuries back in February and, um, the clients attended with their, their spouses and it's, um, you know, it was recorded and it, it's kind of available through their kind of, uh, intranet, their top secret intranet. <laughs> and so they can like kind of sign on and watch it again. And, you know, we talked about, you know, self-care, of course, um, mindfulness, grounding, communication, um, you know, taking, taking breaks, the educational piece about trauma, how it, you know, how it changes your brain, um, how, you know, vicarious trauma can be real, especially with, um, you know, some of my police officers, uh, they, uh, they have to be re- relocated quite rurally. And so the family, the kids and the, you know, the, the, the husband or wife, uh, they, they go with them. And, you know, because like, if you're policing a town, that's like population, like 900, and there's like, no, no other villages or towns around, everyone knows who you are. And so it's, it's often, the case that the trauma may happen at their doorstep and, and the, uh, the children and the, the, the family members may be privy and like witnesses to that may be a part of that. And so it's just so important that like the, the education about trauma is there and, and reducing that stigma that it's like totally normal that they have these reactions to these abnormal, horrible events. And yeah, that, that they, they're able to connect and be kind of a part of a community as well. Yeah. I do understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely imagine also like having, um, military loved ones and police officers as your, your parent and having them leave every day or for deployment, like that alone can be, can cause a lot of trauma most likely because you don't know what could happen throughout the day. 
Yeah. That, and that is a very uncomfortable thing to, to sit with. Yeah. You can totally love and respect your parents or your spouse's career and also be, be, be yeah, secretly like want them to not do it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an honorable, uh, highly regarded uh, position, you know, to, to, you know, serve our country. And it's uh, also got a, a dark side and, and a scary side. Like both things can be true. You know, it's totally okay to, you know, resent it at times, <laughs> to, to love it and to, uh, to, feel, to feel neutral and to feel all these feelings. And so having um, someone in your corner as well to talk to you and to support you and, you know, because oftentimes like the, the partner um, is almost, almost like the spokesperson of the family. So um, the province I live in, it's not like a huge pro- province. I'd say it's like kind of comparable to maybe like Seattle and like, you know, we are like Halifax, like we have stuff to do, like there's like events and things, but like, you know, there's also like suburbia and it's not like a high traffic city like Toronto or like New York or it's it, yeah Louise like you know New Orleans did not it, it's like fairly small and there's lots of like rural kind of pockets and stuff and so um, we had a horrible horrible shooting that occurred in April 2020 and like shootings like do not happen here like yeah. it's, it's a very like rare thing I'm knocking on wood right now but like you know you may hear of them maybe in in, in Toronto like in Ontario like the bigger busier more uh, urban or America yeah or America right yeah. but like yeah we like like literally if a shooting happens, like it's like a big deal. So we had this horrible, horrible shooting. The anniversary just passed 23 people died, including a police officer. And, um, it affected many people, civilians, the family members of the victims, of course, that were the most affected. And it really affected our police officers because we had several different police forces responding with, uh, you know, low, uh, you know, low staffing numbers, uh, people already affected by COVID because it was in April, 2020, you know, um, all these cool things. And, you know, of course this thing happens and immediately everyone in the community is asking like the, the police officers, families, like what's going on? Are they okay? Um, because yeah, it was a very chaotic, uh, awful scene that happened. Right. And the shooting spanned several hundred kilometers. It was a really horrible thing. And so, yeah, that the spouse has to deal with the worry is like, you know, is my partner okay? Like are are they the one that got shot? Like, are they, are they okay? Like what's going on? Um, because several of the officers were, were pulled for, you know, multiple shifts to deal with this because it spanned a few days. Um, and yeah, like that, that is just a very highly traumatic, morally injurious situation to, to deal with, to, to, you know, have to face the criticism on the, on the police for, you know, not acting or, or, or responding the way they did to try to support your partner. Maybe you're, because we're, you know, not a huge uh, province, maybe, you know, someone that was harmed or, or, or killed it's a very, very complex thing. And so, yeah, there's the, the, the family members and the, the members themselves face a lot of emotions, a lot of intense intensity and combined with like, you know, de- the defund the police movement, like that, that's a lot to grapple with to, to, you know, be um, again, I, I hate using these terms, but like, you know, good or bad to be like a good person and a not always good organization or not always good right. colleagues. It, it's, it is super hard to untangle. So yeah, support is, is key to have someone, um, you know, process the all the layers to this oh my gosh it's a lot I'm glad that uh we brought up the family members because talking about that made me realize how much moral injury they experience as well through that just like if they lose a loved one in the line of duty I could have told them to leave I, I know I should have told them that this wasn't the line of work like that that oh has to God. hold a lot of guilt as well horrendous yeah horrendous yeah horrendous mm-hmm. yeah extremely difficult yeah seriously Family members, I see you. You guys are just yeah. like the unsung, unsung heroes, really, because you are the you're backing the badge or or your 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 doctor. Um, you're you're the one that that's there that nobody sees. Yeah. Well, th- I know this was a very heavy topic today, but I I appreciate 
the like lightness you brought to it and the inf- information that you've brought to, so everyone can learn from this because I mean, I think a lot of people can listen and gain more respect for uh, these first responders, healthcare workers, veterans, police officers. And um, even, even though, like you said, like there's systemic problems in all of it, but, mm-hmm. but, but they, you can still respect the person individually who is uh, grieving and who's going through a lot of trauma just to help others. So Absolutely. thank you for all you do really. And no, that's, I know it's probably so weird to hear that. Cause like, <laughs> whenever like people say that they're like, no, it's like what I do, but like, no, seriously, you do, you do a lot to help with this community. So that's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate the sentiment and, and yeah, you know, uh, it, it's, it's seriously a privilege. It's, it's always, um, feels good no matter who you're working with, you know, uh, Hey civilians, if, if you, if you're a hairdresser or you work at Starbucks, you're awesome. Yeah. You know, you, you, you have value and in, in every, every human being has worth just because you are alive. So you are just as special. Um, and you know, I think one of the awesome things with being a therapist and the privileges and what makes me feel good is you are a, a safe person. You get to provide a safe place for people who feel very, very unsafe most of the time. And so, yeah, whatever, whoever I work with, whoever walks through the door, you know, it's, it's always my privilege and, uh, I really enjoy doing the work. Awesome. Well, where can, uh, people find you and follow you on any social media platforms? Yeah. So, uh, Sam, Sam, the shrink is my, uh, uh, Instagram handle. It's Sam dot the dot shrink. And, uh, the reason why I kind of use like a kind of a quirky, funny name is because, you know, most of my clients referred me as, as, as a shrink, um, you know, um, and so (laughs) I thought that'd be kind of funny. And, uh, yeah, it's what I do. I am a therapist and, uh, yeah, I do have a Facebook page that kind of corresponds with that. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the, the best way to follow me. And, uh, you know, I'll be posting more about trauma and moral injury, of course, because just trying to, just trying to spread the word. Yeah. So definitely follow Sam. If you, if you want to learn more about this subject, that I found very fascinating to talk about today and learn more about, um, hopefully I can have like a research paper to write something on this would be really cool. Yeah. Hey, I'll read it. You go. you. Okay. All right. Well, I'll proofread it a little. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me and I will talk with you in a second. Today's music was written and produced by Tyler O'Brien. You can find him on Instagram at dreamscape, D-R-E-A-M-S-C-A-P-E and follow his band at wastelander underscore band on Instagram. <laughs>